Welcome to Church Life Today. This is your host, Tim O'Malley. Sharing stories of Catholic leaders whose creativity and imagination has renewed the life of the church. I'm a professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame and the managing director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. We know the facts. Catholic millennials are leaving the church by the time they're 12 or 13 years old. They leave because they see a conflict between science and religion. They leave because they don't understand the church's teaching on homosexuality, on contraception, on marriage. They leave because, well, they don't always seem to care. Our next guest is trying to do something about this. Brandon Vaught is a best-selling author, blogger, and speaker who is the content director of Bishop Robert Barron's ministry, Word on Fire. He's also the recent author of Why I Am Catholic and You Should Be Too with Ave Maria Press. In this book, Brandon seeks to understand how the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of Catholicism make it a countercultural way of living. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hey, Tim. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Congratulations on the recent new book. I just was able to read it. It's a real sort of contribution to the church, so congratulations. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you. I want to ask a question, because in some ways, this is an interesting book in the present state of evangelization in the church today. I know that you and I were both at the Convocation for Catholic Leaders in Orlando, Florida. We heard a lot about missionary discipleship. We heard a lot about encountering the person of Jesus Christ. And we actually didn't hear a lot about apologetics and reason and understanding. So convince me, why is it the approach that you're doing in your book why I'm Catholic. Why is this approach really necessary for the new evangelization? Great question. I'd say a couple things. First of all, we know from surveys, but also from anecdotal experience, that the overwhelming majority of people who leave the church or who have never been Catholic are simply disinterested in religion. They're just ambivalent. It's not even on their radar. And so the first thing we have to do, even before we get to talking about missionary discipleship or drawing them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, is just to get them to realize that God, the church, religion, Jesus, these are things worth thinking about. And that's one of the tasks I set out to do in this book, is to sort of make a fresh case for Catholicism for people that have never considered it before, or maybe to try to get people to reconsider it again. But secondly, to your point about reasons, when we look at the surveys of why people have left the church, and thankfully we have lots of data on this from CARA, to the Pew Research Center, to individual dioceses who have commissioned their own exit surveys, and they ask former Catholics, why did you leave? You know, what's going on? By far, the most common reason that shows up in these surveys is some version of, I just stopped believing, or I no longer believe. Now, interpret that how you want. It could mean they don't believe in God anymore, but it's my assumption that most of the time that means they don't believe in the church's teachings anymore. They don't believe what the church is putting on offer. And what that implies is that they haven't found any good reasons to take the church's positions seriously. 
And so that's what I try to provide in my book. And that's, as you say, the role of apologetics, of providing good reasons for what you believe. Yeah, I really like what you say here about the nature of the lack of belief. It's my own experience with teaching undergraduates that often the case that they, they haven't left the church because they are actively against Catholicism. They're, they're rejecting what they don't know. How do you do apologetics in a way? I know there's a good apologetics and a bad apologetics. A good apologetics, I think, does something like you're doing. A bad apologetics maybe reduces it to to reason or to philosophical proofs. How do you avoid doing a reductive apologetics? Yeah, good question, Tim. It's an art form, certainly. I think any good apologist or evangelist would tell you that the best approach is sort of an ad hoc approach where every single person is treated uniquely and you respond to them apologetically depending on where they're at or what they offer. What I found works really well is to approach a non-Catholic or a former Catholic with the spirit of friendly curiosity and ask a lot of questions. So what you want to do is pull out from them what they're thinking, what they're rejecting. You mentioned that working with a lot of young people that oftentimes, and I would say the large majority of the time, when someone rejects the Catholic Church, they're rejecting some flimsy caricature of what the church really is. Or when they say, I don't believe in God, and you ask them, well, what do you mean by God when you say there's no God or I don't believe in God? You'll get some definition that's a far cry from what we Catholics mean when we say the word God. So by approaching the situation with friendly curiosity and asking questions like, well, what do you believe about X, Y, or Z? Or what do you mean by this term? Or why do you think that? How did you come to that belief? I think all those questions are a great pathway into apologetics because once you can understand the other person's views, then you can begin offering reasons for uh, helping them to consider perhaps opposing views. Yeah, so it's a retrieval of an apologetics that's grounded in the dialogue tradition of the church, where you actually do take seriously the objections of your interlocutor and don't just come in with packaged answers. This is a really fine point. We're talking today to Brendan Vaught on Redeemer Radio. Brandon, I have a question about one thing your book does super well. It responds to relativism. It responds to a rejection of all truth, that everything is subjective. But as a teacher, I've encountered this. Often this relativism runs really deep in the lives of my students. So at one point you speak about, we need some sort of objective truth because we want to be able to judge whether or not Hitler is actually did something good or bad. But I've actually run into my students who will say, actually, we can't judge Hitler because we don't have the same moral background he does. So, so we can't judge him. What do you do with this kind of relativism that's run so deep that actually the student actually kind of is OK with it? Yeah, it's distressing, isn't it, Tim? You know, I see it all the time among my 20 and 30 something friend, year old friends. And it's harrowing because it's hard to believe that people are really relativists all the way down to the core. But what I found is when you press them just a little bit, you usually will get them to admit that there's at least some objective truth in the world that nobody, even if they identify as a relativist, nobody lives their life that way. So for example, the student 
in your hypothetical example, or maybe that was a real case. I mean, if you just gave that student an F on their next paper without even reading it, and they got upset and argued that that's wrong, that you ought not to have done that because uh, it's unjust, you could say, well, you might feel that way, but I felt perfectly happy giving you an F. It made me feel better. It made my life easier. They would never in a million years just say, well, that's a good point. I guess, you know, I can't judge you to determine whether you ought to have done that or not. So I'll be content with my unjustified F. Nobody would would do that, even if even if they're trying to put on a front that relativism is true. But pressing the point on that Hitler example, you know, if someone says, if you ask somebody, was Hitler objectively wrong in exterminating six million innocent people? They might say, well, it's tough to judge him because of his, you know, cultural milieu and we're, we live in a different time and a place. And what you need to do is distinguish then between objective immorality and culpability. So you could say, okay, well, let's at least agree that what he did was objectively wrong, even if he may have mitigated culpability. He may not have known what he was doing or he was fed the wrong facts or whatever. So he might not be guilty of, he might not be culpable or guilty of uh, of an immoral atrocity, but the act itself was objectively wrong. Can you at least agree with that? And I found that 99 times out of 100, once you press a little bit in that way, you can get them to admit there are at least some objective facts. And when you get that foot in the door, then you can open up all sorts of interesting questions about where did those objective facts come from? Where, what are they grounded in? What makes them objectively binding? And I think those sorts of questions are what leads to God. Yeah, it's a nice point, and you have a nice style. I'm really grateful for it. Uh, it takes some, someone seriously, but at the same time really does seek out the truth. Uh, where did you learn to do this? I mean, uh, I've met a lot of apologists in my life who want to force feed someone. Uh, where did you learn to be the kind of apologist you are? Well, uh, through a lot of reading, but more importantly, through a lot of real-life conversations. Uh, for the last four years, I've run a website called strangenotions.com, which has grown to sort of become the largest place of dialogue between Catholics and atheists. So it's meant to bring together these two groups who disagree on just about everything and have serious-minded, charitable discussions about God, the church, morality, science, and much more. And so a lot of the skills that I share in this new book, Why I Am Catholic, were born from thousands of conversations with atheists and agnostics and skeptics over the years. And I found that's the only approach that works. If you're a Catholic who wants to effectively share your faith with others, you can't just read books. Otherwise, you're in danger of what Tim's describing here, of just coming across as as forceful and not compassionate. And you won't be effective because people will think you're just trying to throw arguments at them or manipulate them. You need to get in the trenches and have real conversations with people and understand what works and what doesn't. We're talking to Brandon Vaught on Redeemer Radio, and we're talking right now about the way that apologetics can't just be grounded in book learning, uh, which is a good reminder for us academics, by the way, but actual conversation and discourse and even friendship with people whom you disagree with. 
You've worked for, for years for Word on Fire. What do you think Bishop Barron's approach is that's been effective? I mean, all my students listen to him and they watch his videos and they share the articles, and thus they share a lot of your own work too. What makes him so effective, you think, to, to the American imagination today? I'd say three things. First of all, Bishop Barron is intelligent and articulate, and people are drawn to that. You know, Bishop Barron has been writing and reading and speaking for years, and so everything that you see online is born of all this hard work. He's not someone who's just sort of spouting off misinformed opinions. He knows what he's talking about, and I don't care if you're an atheist, an agnostic, a Protestant, a Catholic. That's intriguing when you find somebody who's brilliant and who can speak articulately. Second, though, I think he engages the culture. He doesn't condemn the culture. He finds the seeds of truth and goodness and beauty within the culture and uses those as pathways to Christianity. And that's compelling, especially for non-Catholics who are reticent about the church because they think the church is simply at odds with the culture. So someone like Bishop Barron, who does movie reviews or book reviews or comments on cultural events without being overwhelmingly negative about the culture, it's attractive. And then finally, I think one thing he does extremely well is highlight the beauty of the church. This is why his Catholicism series was so effective, because people were drawn in not only by what he was saying, but what they were seeing on the screen. When you see these stunning Gothic cathedrals and these beautiful saintly sisters in Calcutta and these stunning liturgies and works of art and sculptures and paintings, you're drawn into the Catholic thing. And so I think the combination of those three things, his intelligence, his engagement with the culture and his emphasis on beauty make him uniquely effective. Well, and I would say it makes you uniquely effective too, because that's the exact approach you would take in Why I'm Catholic. You move through these three transcendentals of Catholicism. You move from truth to goodness to beauty. And in my own work, primarily teaching undergraduate theology, one of the things I've learned is that beauty really does matter, and perhaps matters most of all. Otherwise, often I find my students, what they'll end up uh, is that they embrace an intellectual system and not yet a way of life, or they won't want to give themselves over to the truth because they don't yet find it something that's a gift. So how do you let this sense of beauty infuse every aspect of the work of apologetics, even with truth, uh, with the teaching of truth or with the teaching of goodness? How is it that beauty drives the bus? Great question. I love that image you just gave, Tim, because I think it's exactly the right approach. Bishop Barron often encourages all Catholics to lead with beauty, and he takes Hans Urs von Balthasar as, as his model here, because in today's world, as Bishop Barron says, and as I'm sure you would affirm, so many people today question truth. We're, we're intellectual relativists, and so many people question morality. You know, don't tell me how to live. But beauty is non-threatening. It's not controversial. You can't argue with beauty. You just encounter beauty. And so the simple answer to your good question is just to put the beauty on display. I think of a great example of this is John Paul II, who spoke often of the splendor of truth. You know, another way to say the beauty of truth, that when you hear truth spoken with clarity and coherence, there's a certain elegance to it, much like 
you hear scientists and mathematicians when they discover some new theory or equation, they speak of its elegance because when the truth just fits in like a key into a lock, there's a certain beauty to it. And so I think that's how apologetics and truth can take advantage of beauty. The level of clarity and coherence that that your truth uh, brings can also usher in the effect of beauty. We're talking to Brandon Vaught uh, from the McGrath Institute for Church Life on Redeemer Radio. We're talking right now about the nature of beauty and the way that it, uh, even elegance of truth kind of manifests itself. One of the things I think I loved towards the, you know, the end of your book, you begin to describe becoming Catholic as entering into a vast treasury, uh, that it's not just about conversion and calling it a day, but that once you're there, you actually have to do something to continue your formation. What are the two or three of the most interesting treasures that you've discovered since becoming Catholic yourself? Oh, I'd say number one, one is the intellectual patrimony of the church. Man, I had no idea as a Protestant that people like Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine or St. Anselm or even Joseph Ratzinger, I had no idea that people like this existed. (laughs) So whenever I became Catholic and started opening myself up to this vast treasury of theology and philosophy, it was like a, a kid in a candy store. So that was number one. Number two, the church's spiritual tradition has been deeply encouraging to me because, again, as a Protestant, our, the spiritual legacy that I was exposed to extended back, you know, 50 years. And the only books we read were books published in the last five or 10 years. But then when I became Catholic, I discovered that, wow, people like Therese of Lisieux or Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross or, you know, St. Ignatius, these spiritual masters who for centuries have been helping people grow deeper into their relationship with God and and develop a a more profound prayer life. It was was like stepping into this whole new world that I didn't even know existed. And so those two things, I think, were probably the most delightful parts of becoming Catholic. Yeah, I mean, myself included, I I, uh, was this nerd on a bus in East Tennessee reading the Catechism alone. Um, uh, Suddenly I found out that there (laughs) were these people named St. Augustine and St. Ignatius and was wooed to the tradition in a way that I never thought I was going to be before. Um, How do you tell someone to get started? There's so much treasure to find. Where do you start? I mean, of course, uh, I would recommend maybe they could start with, why am I Catholic? But what are, where else should they go? What's the kind of first step for entering this treasure house and, and trying to find some of these resources? Yeah, good question. You know, you don't want to just give someone a fire hose approach and say, oh my goodness, read these 50 books and go watch these movies and go visit these cathedrals and (laughs) listen to this music and see these paintings. I mean, that'll be too overwhelming for people. And so I just, I take the the St. Augustine approach, the take and, and read or the take and see, you know, pick up one of these great books and expose yourself to it. Go look at one incredible soul-lifting piece of Catholic art. Go step into St. Peter's Basilica or St. Patrick's Cathedral or go visit Notre Dame. Any of these experiences, I think, can give people a little taste of the Catholic thing and get them hungering for more. We're speaking to Brandon Vaught uh, at the McGrath Institute for Church Life on Redeemer Radio. 
I have a, 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 a proposal for you. I, I read your book and I kept thinking, you know, this is the kind of guy I'd like to take over a Catholic school or a program for catechesis. So if imagine for a moment that I actually gave you that job. Of course, you have lots of jobs, and, uh, uh, but we, you got that job. How do you change things in Catholic education or, or, or in catechesis so that we don't need books like your own in future years, uh, or at least we don't need them for Catholics leaving the church? How do we change that culture? I would do two things immediately. First of all, I'd make sure that we had a strong foundation of apologetics in my school. And so no child would graduate from my school and say, I don't have any good reasons for being Catholic. Whereas today, I think the large majority of Catholics do leave school saying that. So number one, they would know why not only they're Catholic, but what are good reasons for sharing with others why they should consider the Catholic Church. But number two, I would make sure that all of the kids in this school were evangelized. I think many times in Catholic schools, we try to segment the academic from the spiritual and Sure, you know, we might go to Mass together once a week or we might pray the Rosary or something like that, but all the surveys show from Christian Smith there at, at your university, from the Pew Center, the CARE Research, that an extremely small number of young people who move through our Catholic schools come out evangelized. They've never had an encounter with Jesus Christ. They don't have a thriving prayer life. They're not familiar with the Scriptures. They don't understand the Mass. So we need to evangelize them. Now, how to do that, that's a discussion for a whole nother show. But I think we need to set them up with opportunities to be evangelized. People need to speak to them about Jesus, how to know Jesus, how to experience the sacraments. They can give them your great book there, Tim, on, on the Mass and understanding the Mass. I just think our biggest problem today is young people who have no good reasons to be Catholic and they've never been evangelized, so there's no anchor holding them into the Catholic Church. Well, I'd be happy to send my children to your school. <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I would keep doing what you're doing, of course. So it's major work. But if you ever do start a Catholic school, it does strike me this is necessary. And, and another part that really strikes me as necessary reading your book is philosophy. I mean, uh, when I think about so much of your book is dealing with bad philosophy. It's not just bad theology, but bad ways of thinking, bad ways of seeking wisdom. It's really the case that our schools don't do a great job teaching philosophy. Yes, and I, I don't know why that is. You would certainly know this way better than I do, but I was not exposed to philosophy at all. I mean, I, I didn't go to a private school. I was trained in public schools, but I mean, I got a degree in mechanical engineering, you know, this high-level mathematical scientific degree. Never once was I ever required to even take a philosophy class. The topic of philosophy never came up in any of my liberal studies classes. And after I discovered philosophy upon graduation, graduating, I was devastated. I thought, how, how could the school never even teach me how to form an argument, how to think critically, how to determine good arguments from bad ones? I mean, these are fundamental skills that everyone should learn early on because you can't possibly engage the more serious subjects until you learn how to think and argue well. So, 
I'm with you. I, I think we need to be teaching our kids philosophy at an earlier age and emphasize it highly. Brandon, just a, a last question. Of course, philosophy and intellectual life is really important, but I've read a lot of your work around how you form your own devotional life and how you form your life so that you really kind of keep at the center this constant prayer, this constant encounter with Christ. And so let's say someone reads your book. They are now convinced of the, the, the truth of Catholicism, its beauty, its goodness. They're reading the other books that you recommend. How do they start to form a devotional life that doesn't ask too much? You know, you don't want people to burn out in the life of prayer very quickly, but it needs to be disciplined. What are some recommendations you'd have for them? Oh, good question, Tim. You know, I'd just give the same answers that the church has given for 2,000 years, which are to start praying. You know, that would be maybe a five or 10 minute time during each day when you sit down and listen to God, when you read the scriptures and reflect on them. I'd say go to Mass. You know, maybe that's once a week to start off with. Maybe later on down the line, you go more often than that. Read good spiritual books that can form you more in the faith and draw you deeper to the Lord. And then move into a community with other like-minded believers. Maybe that's in your parish. Maybe you find that community online. But you need to commune with other Catholics who can help lead you deeper in the faith. I think one big mistake that people like you and me, especially who are more intellectually inclined, make is that we think living the faith is is not more than just reading books and living in the world of the abstract. But we need to take these concrete steps of praying, reading the scriptures, going to Mass, and joining a community if our faith is to thrive. Well, it's great advice. It's exactly what's necessary for the Church, just like your book, Why I'm Catholic and You Should Be Too. If you'd like to get more information about Brandon's latest book, you can visit brandonvot.com, or you can order the book directly from Ave Maria Press. Brandon, it's been a gift to have you on, and and I'm really uh, hopeful that a lot of people get their hands on your book in the coming days, as well as I'm sure you're, you're hopeful for that too. I am. And thanks so much, Tim. You know, I'm a huge fan of your work and everything you're doing up there at Notre Dame. So thanks so much. Brandon, thanks so much. 